His name is John. John is the father of Jasmine and Jade. <laughs> You're being clapped for having kids. Very well done, John. If you're visiting this morning, if this is your first service that you are here with us, then we're glad that you're here. We trust that God has you here for a reason, that he wants to speak to you. There's something he wants you to know, something for you to learn, something for you to discover, and perhaps even to enter into a real relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's the mission and purpose of our church, to cooperate with God, to respond to what he is doing, because God is in the process of transforming people so that they can become from being rebels and far from God into being people who are close to him and accepted and part of his forever family and then not just that but he wants us to have a very deep personal intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus to be passionate in our obedience to him we're working our way through the gospel of John so I'm going to read to you from God's words from the second chapter of John's gospel each week we're going to read not always read the full chapter, but certainly read some of the chapter. This morning we're going to read all of chapter 2 because it's only a short chapter for 25 verses. And in the process of reading through John's Gospel, we are looking for the theme of working with God. Of seeing how did God work in the world back here? What does this, these Bible stories and passages teach us and reveal to us? How did God work through the person of the Lord Jesus? How did Jesus work? And so what clues can we pick up from that? And even some clues about what does this passage of parts of God would teach us about people and how they respond, which can inform us in our dealings with people and how they might respond. Well, this chapter of John chapter 2 falls into three parts. And uh, David Daniels is preaching tonight on this same, uh, well, the same chapter, be a different message. Um, let me encourage you to come tonight because he'll probably fix up a whole lot of things that I'm about to say this morning. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure how David went this morning, but I, every now and again, when it comes to preparing a message, sometimes it's just like hitting a wall again and again and again. And that was this week for me. I've read this chapter and read this chapter and read this chapter, and I've, at the end of it, you know, I'm journaling stuff and I'm writing stuff down. At the end of it, I've gone, I don't know what I'm going to preach. <clears throat> this is not coming together for me. And so, towards the latter part of the week, Thursday, Friday, uh, I started to say, okay, I'll focus on just the first part of this and that's the most helpful thing I think that I can do um, and throw out some of my, throw out as in share with you some of my journal entries and comments um, and then I'm going to let the Holy Spirit stitch it together because I <laughs> couldn't. John chapter 2, we're going to read and then pray. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. It's interesting. John never calls her her name. What's her name? He never says that. He always calls her Jesus' mother. It's interesting, isn't it? Say yes. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Please note, Jesus' mother was there. But it's Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding talk about that <clears throat> when the wine was gone Jesus' mother said to him uh, they have no more wine uh, this sounds terrible to our English ears it's an accurate translation 
but it's culturally very different. Jesus says, uh, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? And it's not. Talk about that. Uh, His mother said to his servants, uh, do whatever he tells you. You can underline that verse. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, uh, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. When, uh, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and then they rested. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in them. This is God's word, and I... Trust the Lord will speak to us through it this morning. Let's pray and ask for him to do exactly that. Heavenly Father, here we are again together with you and looking to you, Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. As we go over these stories, these incidences in the life of the Lord Jesus, your son, we pray that you might give us an insight into how you work and how you continue to work, and how we can cooperate with you in that. Lord, there could very well be some other truth that you would like to speak to different individuals. And so I ask that you might have your way, and that your will might be done. Our desire, Lord, is to hear, in order that we might do that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray this again, in Jesus' name. Amen. I've sort of wrestled with this, so I'm, I'm... going to make it up as I go probably. Jesus Christ is the creator and he's the one who came into the world to fulfill all of the messianic promises that came out of the Old Testament. And this first passage, there are three paragraphs, in this first one where he turns the water into wine, Jesus takes that which is empty 
and fills it and transforms it. It's a parable, it's a symbol of the empty jars of Judaism, of the old religion, of the Old Testament, and now empty, and now Jesus is bringing the new wine of the new age, of the Messianic age, and he will work to transform. And it's the servants who work with him. It's interesting, he does it through others to achieve his purposes. That's the very truth we are learning. And it's Mary's statement which is central. What she says to him is, whatever he says to you, do it. We're like the story, the servants in the story. And so I'll come back and expand that a little bit more. Second paragraph where the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple. It's not about um, making sure people have the opportunity, uh, making sure people's worship of God is reverent. That's not it. The point of this story is that God will work in a way to remove any obstacles that stop the nations coming to know him. That's what the story is about. These animals and money changes and things like that are in the court of the Gentile. And when Jesus sees it, that they are setting up, which what started out as a very helpful service to travelling Jews who came from other parts of the world, where you didn't have your animals, so you could buy the animals for your sacrifice there, who came to bring their temple tax and they couldn't use foreign coins, they had to use Jewish coins, because to take foreign coins with a king on it from a, another nation would be to pollute the temple in the eyes of the Jews. And so they had to go through a money change process. And of course, um, the high priest was behind all of this and there was a markup. Uh, you bought your animals here, but they were at a high price. You exchanged your money here, but it was at a high price. And so they were making a massive amount of money in the temple and Jesus saw it. And the thing that disturbed him was not simply that they were ripping off and oppressing people, it's rather that they were doing it in the very location where God wanted the nations to come to the temple. They were stopping the Gentiles, they were stopping the nations coming to know God. And Jesus removed it. And I think the truth of the story is that God is still at work and he will remove the obstacles from people's lives or from our lives which is preventing other people from coming to know him. It's a cleansing disciplining act that he still does and so on the third paragraph i think is about people will come to the lord jesus but it's not always fair income at the end of this chapter you have people who are responding to the signs that jesus was doing in jerusalem and jesus was not trusting them it's almost like he knows their heart and the reality is that when some people do respond to the gospel and accept Jesus, that not always is it fair income. Sometimes it's surface level. It may begin to be sincere, but it turns out to not be. Remember the story of the four soils? The first one doesn't respond at all. The next two do respond, but it's not deep. And there are other distractions, whether it's temptations or the cares of this world or the worries of this life. Other things enter in. And the word doesn't take root and it doesn't bring forth fruit. That's what that paragraph is reminding us of. Unlike Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1, where Jesus looks at him and says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Here is a fair income follower seeing into his heart. Contrasting that with the end of chapter 2 with, here are people saying they believe, but in reality, I'm not sure it's heartfelt, not fully embraced. Now, the disturbing question for us to face is, for you to face, where do I fit in that? Is it real for me? Or am I one of the surface level ones? How will I know? It's not a feeling thing. 
It's a fruit thing. What fruit, what transformation is coming forth in your life? As the Lord Jesus says in another context, you will know them by their fruits, the results that come. So there are the three paragraphs. And the, the simple one that I didn't want to talk any more about is simply to remind you that God will work strongly to remove obstacles to seekers. <clears throat> and I haven't seen the Lord do that um, dramatically and drastically, but I have seen him do it on occasions dramatically. where He has removed people. Not only have they left churches, I've only got one experience that I think that I, am a, that I would say is where the Lord said, enough is enough, you're coming home. And the man's life was ended. And I think that was under discipline. Just like it says in Corinthians, some of you have fallen asleep because of disobedience in your life. And this man had crossed the line on numerous occasions. And I think, I don't know infallibly, but I think, my understanding is, and the Father said, I'm taking you home to glory. God does that. Um, so we're not to toy with him. So let's work our way through the wedding. And let me share with you some of the insights or some of the information I've been able to gather out. In this wonderful story, very well-known story, even a story that my father, who is not a believer, even a story that he knows and that he dismisses, in the Gospel of John, from chapters 2 to 12, there are eight miracles. <clears throat> As I already told you, John never refers to Mary by name. So um, at this wedding, it would appear that she's not an invited guest, but it must be some sort of family context, I'm guessing, at this point. And she, like one of the relatives, is there to help. You've been at weddings like that, haven't you? Where the family is helping to cut down costs and everything else. That's why there is a distinction that she was there... But Jesus and the disciples were invited. Joseph is not mentioned, and that could be because he's already passed away, as most commentators would say. Point to note, Jesus was working with God. Everything he did was in obedience to and responsiveness to what the Father was doing. And here is Jesus at a wedding. He's mingling socially with people. And he's ministering to them at their point of social need in their daily activities. He was there at the significant milestones of people's lives. Well, there's a clue for us. We are to work with God in mingling socially with people. And at the high points of their life, at baby dedications, at baptisms, at weddings, at funerals, at all of those transitional points, be there, be present. Because it's often at those points that God is, um, and people are more open to what God is doing. So the Lord Jesus was invited. And then there is this terrible situation develops. They ran out of wine. Now, for us, um, and perhaps for many of you, you might be very uncomfortable with this story when it's talking about Jesus not only making wine, but making a whole lot of wine. Um, so I want to read to you a paragraph from a commentator, John MacArthur, who I think writes with a great deal of wisdom and balance on this issue. Um, let me just be upfront and say this. We are not talking about grape juice. We are talking about wine. <clears throat> you might want to come and talk to me about that later. Um, but my mind's made up. My mind is shut, so I don't know what good that will do. <laughs> this is what MacArthur says. Wine was a staple drink in the ancient Near East. Staple drink. 
Due to the warm climate and the lack of any means of refrigeration or purification, fruit juice tended to ferment. The result was an alcoholic beverage which, with the capability of inducing drunkenness to avoid the risk of inebriation, wine was commonly diluted with water to one-third up into one-tenth of its strength. Hear that? Though the Bible does not forbid drinking wine and in some cases commends it for medicinal and health reasons, it strongly condemns drunkenness. That'll do. Enough on wine. So it was wine, but it was weakened. It was watered down. Um, But if you drank too much of it, of course, you could get drunk. And the Bible is very clear. Don't do that. Um, What should you do with today's wine? Well... Romans 14.5 says, let everybody be convinced in their own mind what they ought to do. For Jesus in this context, here is a terrible social situation. It's not just embarrassing that it might be even for us, but for them it was culturally highly offensive. It could result in a lawsuit. The The bride's parents could sue the groom for not providing enough wine. That's how serious it was. And so here is this young couple, and potentially, I'm guessing, you know, not having the means to provide abundantly, and they've invited Jesus. That's always a good idea, invite the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is responding to a specific need, and he still does. And Mary, who is, I'm guessing, a widow at this point, she, of course, goes to, turns to her firstborn son, who happens to also be at the wedding, and says to him, problem. It's all done on the quiet. Nobody knows this is going on. And his response to her is, as I said in reading it, that it sounds, it's impolite, uh, like he doesn't say mum and he doesn't say mother, he says woman. Now, I've tried, I don't know how to say that in a softer way, woman, woman. (laughs) It just gets worse the more you try. So... I can only explain it this way, that the phrase Jesus uses, it's the same phrase that he says to her when he's on the cross. He calls her the same word, woman. He's hardly being impolite or rude. He's being polite, but he is not being intimate or affectionate. So what? I'm falling apart. So what? Well, it means that... He's wanting now to say, you will relate to me in a different way. I am your firstborn son, but now you've got to relate to me not as your firstborn son, but as your saviour, as your Lord, as the Messiah. That's the beginning of that distinction in their relationship. Um, And Mark 3, Luke 11 goes on to demonstrate that in public things. You know, your mum's outside waiting for you, Lord Jesus. And he says, who is my mother, father, brothers, sisters, those who hear the word of God and do it? He's sort of distancing himself from that very close, beautiful relationship, I'm sure, that they did have. Um, Jesus also makes it very clear to her that he is now operating according to God's timetable. My hour has not yet come. That's a good word for us, that God is the one who is sovereignly in control and he times things exactly right. We get impatient. We think, I wish he would do it quicker. I wish he would do it now. But he has a reason. And one of the things of learning to maturity is to trust him even in that and even through the hard stuff. Hmm. Mary's response is just wonderful. She is undeterred by his responses After all, 
He didn't say no. Only a woman could think like this. He didn't say no. Therefore, there's a possibility they might do something. So she says to the servants, now you don't get this in the English, but the Greek word is a very different word. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, when you read the Greek New Testament, then you do get an occasional subtle difference. And on this occasion, he turns, she tells the servants, not the household servants, not the slaves of the household, she turns to those who were helping her at the wedding, the other family members, those who were assisting, and says to them, whatever he says to you, do it. If we are going to work with God, then just like these servants, that's exactly what we are going to have to do. We are going to have to do whatever he says to us. I want to take a very large um, digression. Coming off that verse, whatever he says to you, do it. And ask the question for you, is that true for you? Are you doing everything? what the Lord Jesus wants you to do? Are you doing what he is commanding you to do? Is you doing what he's placing on your heart to do? Are you responding to him? Because that's what he desires. From the Garden of Eden till the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, obedience is required. Revelation twenty-two fourteen says, Blessed are those that do his commandments because then they have the right of access to the tree of life. Blessed are those who do his commandments. From paradise lost to paradise regained, Right in the middle of it all is the obedience of the one whom we now call Lord, who through his obedience is able to transform many into being made righteous. Obedience is required. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're a child of God, then that's the first and last thing God wants from you. Simple, daily obedience. If you're going to work with God this year, obedience. If we as a church are going to do what he wants, obedience responding to his direction and his lead let me amplify this i got this out of a book by andrew murray called um, with christ in the school of prayer in the school of obedience i think is the name of it noah four times in the book of genesis we are told according to all that god commanded him so noah did four times according to all that god commanded him so he did it's an insight for us that god is the one who not only commands us, but the ones who obey is the one that God will entrust his work to. Do all that he tells you, Mary says. For Abraham, Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Abraham obeyed. And you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, how he took Isaac. The response to that, Genesis 22 verse 18, thereabouts, God says to Abraham, now that you have done this, now I know that you love me. Now I know that you will obey me. I will bless you. I will multiply you because you have obeyed my voice. Because you did what I wanted you to do, therefore these are the consequences. The reverse of that, because we don't do what he wants us to do, there are also consequences. We miss out on things. We disappoint him. Moses, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he says to the people of Israel, if you will obey my voice, you will be a peculiar treasure to me above all people, if you obey my voice. When the tabernacle was being built, Exodus 38 and 40, those last three chapters of Exodus, 19 times, according to all that God commanded Moses, so he did. 
19 times. It's a refrain all the way through. Joshua, Jeremiah, um, book of Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel. The life of Saul is the study in the reverse of this. He's a man who did not obey and see what happened to him. You come to the New Testament, you get, of course, marvellously demonstrated, particularly the Gospel of John, the person of the Lord Jesus. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 10.18, this command I have received from my Father, and he's doing it. Jesus says to his disciples, John 14.15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And of course, it's the Lord Jesus who says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my heavenly Father. People will say to me on that day, Lord, I did this. I cooperated with you. I was working with you. I prophesied. I did miracles. I cast out demons. I didn't know you, Jesus will say. Depart from me. And not about being religious. It's about knowing him personally and in relationship, doing what he wants. Acts 5.32 was a verse that I have wrestled with for years, theologically and experientially. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And you can read the commentaries and you can see evangelical commentators do spiritual gymnastics to try and get away from some of the implications of that. My best bet, and I might be wrong, but my best understanding of that is we have the Holy Spirit when we receive the Lord Jesus and as we grow in him and as we obey him, it's not like we receive more of the Holy Spirit, but it's more like we experience more of the Holy Spirit. We are more aware of his presence. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And then it's in Romans and James and Peter and 1 John. Just the theme all through the scripture, exactly what Mary says. Whatever he says to you, do it. Well, if we're going to work with God, that's what we need to be doing. So back to the wedding. There was the scene. They were at a wedding. There was a situation. They ran out of wine, which is a credible faux pas, a difficulty. The solution, the Lord Jesus turns. <clears throat> and while he says to Mary, um, my hour is not here. It's not my time just yet. He's responding to the Father. He then turns to these servants, these people who are assisting at the wedding, and says to them, fill these water jars to the top. If you want to know what the water jars are for, you can read Mark 7, which will talk about all the things the Jews used water and purification for, and what they used daily cleansing and processes and so on. My dad says, this first miracle was by sleight of hand. Jesus put something in that turned it into wine or something that looked like wine. And my answer to my dad is, well, after I said rubbish, <laughs> Jesus had them filled to the brim. There was no room for anything else. So my dad's wrong on that. And they were very large. <clears throat> Interesting thing is, the creator used water to make wine. Now here's a clue of how God works in the world. He is the creator, the sovereign one, all wise, all knowing. Things don't catch him off guard and saying, oh, I never thought of that. <clears throat> he uses water to make wine. That's how he's always done it. Water from the sky, rain falls to the soil, grows up through the vine and goes into the grape. Water becomes wine. All Jesus did was skip that whole process and turn water into wine, pointing to the fact that he is 
the creator. Um, and he's the one who was at working in the world. The significance of the sign is it reveals his glory, who he is, and people come to believe in him. Well, let me finish by sharing with you these, whatever it is, nine, eight, nine, something statements that I journaled this week that are my reflections upon this story. Jesus works in response to our request. I wrestled all week whether I would be cheeky and say this bit of it. The Catholics could have a real field day with this verse because Jesus works in response to a request from his mother, Mary. And they believe that Mary, you see, you pray to her and she talks to Jesus and she gets him to do it. I can see by your reaction, I shouldn't have shared that. <clears throat> the truth is, Jesus works in response to request. He still does. James says, we have not because we ask not. Jesus worked this out in response to our request. Now, you can hypothesize, gee, if she never said that, would he have still done it? I don't know. I don't know. Interestingly, verses 6 to 8 here, second point, Jesus works through others, still does. He works through the servants in this case. He does it his way. It's secret. It's behind the scenes. It's not a trumpet fanfare. He doesn't draw attention to it. He just does the work. It's very quiet. And he often still does it just quietly. A lady comes to the office this week, as I already told you, in for a welfare situation, and Jesus is working quietly behind the scenes. And one of his other children... David is, happens to be there and responds to something he senses what the Father is doing, quietly at work. People, when they were watching this, people would have seen men at work, people at work, men and women at work. They wouldn't have seen God at work. That's often the way it still is. People will see us doing things, they won't see God at work, but really is God behind us doing things. The means is human, the result is divine. Does that make sense? Jesus responds to request and he works through others. Arthur Pink said, God is pleased to use human instruments in performing the wonders of his grace. I love that sentence. God is pleased to use human instruments in performing the wonders of his grace. That's his will. He wants to use us. The very first miracle the Lord Jesus does is turning water into wine. He is pleased to work with ordinary people to do the Father's will. Jesus transformed the water into wine. He took that which is empty and he filled it. He transformed it and through that process revealed his glory. And if you think about it, that's exactly what he is still doing. That which is empty, he fills and he transforms and it reveals his glory. And he's doing it in people's lives. For those of you who have ears to hear and you can accept this, the wine often in the New Testament is taken to be the symbol of Jesus' blood. It's taken to the communion service. And if you take that perspective here then this is the wine is excuse me christ's blood which is abundantly provided and brings great joy but you need to think that through theologically i thought this insight was helpful for me who knew that jesus turned the water into wine who knew that the servants it's those who are closest to jesus who were involved in this, who knew what God was doing. What puzzled the master of ceremonies, what the bride and the groom didn't know about and would find out about later, they knew. 
It's still that way. Those who are close to the Lord Jesus will know what he is doing. Amos 3.7 says, God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants. The servants, those who humble themselves and are closely with him. Somebody asked Archbishop William Temple one day, does God have favourites? And he says, no, but he does have intimates. He does have people who are close to him. And he wants us to be those sorts of people. Let us, therefore, as a people, humble ourselves, place ourselves at his disposal. Do whatever he tells us. And he will reveal himself. He will reveal his ways. He will work his work. Then I reflected upon <clears throat> when the master of ceremonies took the wine to the, um, the bridegroom. The master of ceremonies says, you, you've saved the best to last. Everybody brings out the best first. And when everybody's, you know, desensitised, then you bring out the cheap stuff. You've done it the other way. And I thought, how typical of the Lord Jesus. Things get better and better. He saves the best. It's still coming. As good as it is now, the best is still to be. Satan is the reverse of that. Satan will work in the world and he'll promise you the best. And then eventually there are consequences that come from it. The wages of sin. The pleasures of sin are for a season. And then there are the wages of sin. It gets the best, turns into the worst. But with Jesus, it's the other way around. It's a blessing and the best is still to come. And then I think, finally, this thought. If the servants do what Jesus says, then he does his work. If the servants do what Jesus says, then God does his work. And so that's the message for us. That's what we need to do. Do whatever he says to you. In the normal exercise and situations of life, be it a wedding or any other circumstance, family barbecue, be always open to the possibility God is at work. Be very close to him. Humble yourself as his servant, listening to him, responding to what he's, you, he's wanting to do through you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> it's a very simple story, Lord Jesus, but it's a wonderful story in terms of its application and its implications. Uh, that you, the creator can transform the natural from water to wine, the sinner to a saint. And that it's your intention, it's your desire to do so through servants. Lord, we are your servants. Um, cleanse us from anything which is an obstruction, an obstacle to others coming to see you and to know you. Deal with us, Lord, and at the points of any of our disobedience or at any areas of our rebellion, remove it from us. Do whatever it is you need to do. But then, Lord, be pleased to work through us to transform people into passionate followers of Jesus, to achieve your will, to extend your kingdom, and to magnify your name. We pray this in your name. And everybody said... Amen.